Hello, and welcome to Makers.dev episode 54. We got a good one for you today. We, Chris and I were just chatting about the different topics. I'm excited. We got some stuff to talk about. Yeah, we got uh, a wide variety of things. I think part of that is we were both sort of on vacation for a little bit, and so this is after Christmas time, and uh, yeah, so we got a lot of thinking done, I think. So yeah, lots of different stuff. Buckle up, folks. Let's get started with uh, a movie that you saw recently. Uh, give me your thoughts. Yeah, on vacation, I saw Matrix Resurrections. Um, I won't go into spoilers, but I'll just say that I think it's great that studios are now releasing at home in the same you know day that they're releasing theaters. I very much enjoy just sitting on my couch watching this one. Um, the movie itself, like, it's fine. It it wasn't great. <laughs> it's fine. Um, I have lots of thoughts. Brutal about review from Chris. <laughs> exactly. It's the only review um, I can do. Uh, but the experience of watching it at home uh, was much better than trying to go to a theater during COVID times. So... That's my review of the movie. Can you imagine investing what I'm sure is hundreds of millions of dollars? <laughs> You're like, oh man, people are going to love this. this oh, we'll, we'll invest in the CGI and let me put this polishing thing on it. Just to hear some dude on a random podcast be like, that <laughs> yeah, was all right. <laughs> I've seen better. Yeah. Um, the, the, like the movie's getting really blasted online. Like a lot of, prof- you know, sort of semi-professional reviewers like really hate it. And like, I didn't hate it. Like it was fine. Like I, I know, I appreciate that they... Like, I could tell where they worked really hard, and so, like, I appreciate that. Um, but it is not... Like, they obviously had to go in some direction, and they picked a direction that, like, I ne- I wouldn't have chosen. Mm. And what what I wish they would have done is exactly what, like, Marvel or Star Wars are doing, which is these miniseries. Like, this really was, like, a miniseries plus a movie. Or, mm. hopefully now, a movie plus a miniseries. Like, that's what mm. I really want to see. Because there's a lot of backstory that they sort of explained with, like, one line of dialogue. And um, so I wish I would have had that backstory. So we'll see. Maybe they'll do a miniseries and it'll be better. Miniseries are a very interesting medium. I've I've enjoyed several of the miniseries in the Marvel Universe. WandaVision was yep. superb. That was so good. And the, the plot was actually worth expanding out into a miniseries. I think it, it would have felt really cramped as a, as a film. Um, and miniseries make sense to be published in this medium of streaming first. You, you can't see WandaVision in theaters. And... I felt like I had a better experience at WandaVision than I did for something like, uh, I, I just saw the most recent Spider-Man film, uh, Spider-Man No Way no Way Home, I think. Uh, yeah. Something home, something about homes. Yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was awesome. I really liked it. Uh, my brother thought it was trash. Uh, he, <laughs> very, very nitpicky. He's, <laughs> he has highly developed taste. Uh, there were some really cool nostalgic things about it. And... I think it would have been really fun to do that as a miniseries. There's a, there were a lots of parts of that that I would have loved to see and uh, explored further. Uh, and no spoilers, but there are uh, two characters introduced, uh, uh, I don't know, three quarters of the way through the film. And I loved watching the interactions between those two characters and the protagonist. I could have watched like five <laughs> episodes of just them doing normal things like going out and getting coffee and like <laughs> it 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 was great there there were some key choices of dialogue between them that oh man it was it was so good uh I, the, the movie's worth seeing just for those interactions um i'd love to talk a little bit about the role of cinema in society right now in this post-covid world where things like miniseries exist and things like uh, you can stream the movie and watch it in theaters at the same time it's and, and uh we have vr films where uh you, you can go in this vr movie theater and like 
man, the, the first time I went back to a cinema uh, and, then, and then after times of COVID, my thought was, this feels like VR. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. the, the, the difference of watching a movie on an IMAX screen versus watching it on your phone. Yes, absolutely night and day. Audio is terrible and the screen size is super small. And uh, even watching it like on your TV, it's a, it's a very different experience. But VR movie screens and IMAX movie screens to me are almost indistinguishable. And there's a lot of advantages about watching a movie in VR on my couch. I don't have to put on pants. I have all my <laughs> snacks nearby. Uh, if I need to go to the bathroom and pause the movie, I can pause it and, and go. Uh, and there is something sort of like nostalgic and, and magical about being there in person in the theater. Um, what's, what's your take on the value that cinemas are providing in 2022? Yeah. Most of my experience, like if I think back on my best movie experiences, it is, um, you know, going with friends or with family to a movie. Um, but especially during COVID, that has completely changed. Like it's it's a totally different experience. And a lot of the movies nowadays, so a lot of the criticisms of Matrix Resurrections are that it is exactly the type of movie you would expect Hollywood to produce right now, even when it tries to be weird. Like it tries to get meta and it tries to, you know, but it's still like, it's an obvious sort of cash grab. And going to see those kind of movies with friends and family is like, eh, whatever. Um, so I, I would like, I definitely liked watching that movie at home better VR. Exa you're exactly right. Like the, the field of view of VR is almost exactly the same as like an IMAX, um, in terms of like your eyes per perception of it. And so, yeah, like in terms of modern movies, um, or like TV shows, miniseries, um, yeah, VR might, might be great. Uh, I just enjoyed watching it on a, on a, laptop um i don't know yeah so once covid is you know has not changed the movie experience anymore than going with friends or family i think is still still a good way to go but hmm. for a lot of these movies i just want to watch it at home seeing it as a social experience is interesting like um i i uh one of my girlfriend sarah's friends uh filmed a pilot for a tv show recently and did the thing where you can rent out a private movie theater and mm -hmm. had all the people from the cast and crew there. And th that was fun because the, the energy was like, ah, this is cool. And it was like an in-person event and uh, you could order food. And it, it was like a party that included a really big screen that everyone was looking at. Um, and I think that's the value that makes the most sense to me. If you're looking at theaters as an event space, as opposed to an individual or a, or a, couple of people movie viewing experience then like okay you can you can like look across the room and see this person there and you're eating food together and uh it's a, it's a party and then maybe you all go out afterwards and do something else um so i think if i were <laughs> in charge of movie theaters i think that's something i'd be really curious about is, is pushing that bespoke private like event space um because i think that's going to make a lot more sense for for value yeah Actually, just before COVID, two theaters opened up near us. One is um, a theater where you can order food and drinks to your table while you watch the movie. So that's cool. like, that's really neat. It's, it's good food and good drinks and you watch the movie. So that we like going to that one. And then there's another one, which is a whole event space. Like you're talking about, they have bowling and arcade and mm. multiple theaters with tables and the theaters, they don't just use for movies, but they use for like, um, we saw a comedian there and other stuff. And, and that's a neat experience because you can go if you want to bowl or do arcade before or after you can and then mm. you get to go watch a show with with you know dinner um and that's a, it's a neat place uh i don't know if they're still open because of covid but <laughs> it was a neat place before then yeah that's neat huh 
I like seeing it as a general event space, like having a comedian there. My mind went to you could have like uh, esports events there uh, that mm. were like mid tier. <laughs> it was like you know the, the amateur pro gamers or some game or something. I'm curious if, if there'd be a market for that because now it's not like like a venue that looks like that is what you would want for an esports arena. You would want stadium seating and, and a screen in the front. Um, and then you could set up two people on their computers there to, to play the game. Um, but you've, it's, it's no longer a cinema. It's, it's an event space. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, I'm curious about the future of theater. Uh, last time we chatted, which to be fair was, you know, <laughs> I think we've both been on vacation for the majority of time since the last episode. Yeah. Uh, we talked a bunch about acorn chat and how the very next thing to do with it was to, uh, put it on the Slack store and talked a little bit about next steps for that. Uh, what's the status of that and what are the next steps? Uh, I have done nothing <laughs> because <laughs> I was packing for a trip and then went on a trip and now I'm back from the trip. Um, fair. Yeah. So I, I did nothing with acorn chat. Um, I did do a little with a Kaggle competition when I was gone because, um, it was a, it was a competition that I could do on Google Colab, which is, so my, my server at home is, uh, you know, behind my modem. And so I can't access it from the outside. I tried to get it set up before I left. And I like I could not figure out how to get a port forwarded through my modem. Yeah. To the, yeah. So I remember doing that. It didn't work. Um, so I've been doing a cattle competition instead while I've been gone. Uh, I still want to do the Acorn Chat stuff, but you know now that I'm back, then I can actually make a plan for that. Um, but no, I, I did nothing. I want to talk about Acorn Chat and the cattle competition. Uh, I guess let's do Acorn Chat first. What is the if if you could break down the next steps for it? Uh, I. I think from last time we talked the goal is to get it on the slack store uh what's what's between where we are right now and acorn chat being on the slack store yeah um so the same stuff as before which is a couple sort of minor but very important features yeah. um, a lot of documentation better sort of home page experience so you actually know what the thing does mm. and then um yeah and then figure out whatever i need to do to get it actually submitted to the store which i think is probably create a vendor account and then make a listing i don't even know so okay yep. okay um can we break that down further I, I'm, I'm, i'd like to nudge you a little bit just to like solidify this and, and like i think what i what i'd love to see is like a checklist of this is exactly what needs to happen and uh actually these three things of improving the documentation like technically that can wait until uh, after it's on the slack app store um but i'd, I'd like to give you a, a Gentle nudge of uh, get this done. <laughs> Let's uh, can do. Do you want to like box yourself in a little bit of spending a certain amount of time on it, or or uh, getting a, a to do list for it? Uh, how how much do you want to tie yourself to the mess? Sure. So there's a little bit of foreshadowing towards the end of this episode, but you can I I, I can uh, let you direct some of my time this week. Um, I think I have. Hmm four big things to do so okay. two features i really I, I don't necessarily need the documentation you're right like all the documentation but i do need more explanation on the home page and some feature pages um and then the slack app store stuff so that's i think four real things and then documentation would be a bonus um okay. so i i will commit to spending say 20 minutes on each of those four things to at least have an update for, for next week um hopefully those 20 minutes lead to you know two hours and i get it done but uh yes i will write down 20 minutes a week or 20 minutes Wonderful. on each one of those things for the week. Okay. I will ask you about that next week. Uh, what I heard was there are two features that you're going to spend 20 minutes each on. 
there is some explanation on the homepage that you'd like to do uh, and spend 20 minutes on, and then all the Slack app stuff to do, uh, spending 20 minutes on. And then after you've done those, as a bonus, you could spend some time on better documentation. Does that sound right? Yep. Um, and, and they may some of those things may take more than 20 minutes. I'm not sure. I mean, uh, the features okay. almost definitely will take a couple hours each. But sure, sure. I'll, I'll consider it a success if you've spent at least 20 minutes on each yep. of those. Okay. Yeah, cool. That seems doable. That's uh, two, four, six, 80 minutes. I could do that after this podcast. That's right. Uh, I could. Um, which means you'll probably wait until <laughs> the day before. The, the complicating uh, factor is my kids are still out of school for a week. And uh, my mm-hmm. wife definitely expects me not to be on my computer this entire time. So I get maybe a couple afternoons of, of working over the next yeah, week. Yeah. Yeah. I, I relate hard to that. I, I have a story I'll tell later about this. Uh, <laughs> I, I set my goal for all of yesterday to like push forward this one project on file inbox and i didn't and just like <laughs> to to like from the beginning of the day my my goal was like all right here we go i'm gonna get you know four hours of stuff done and through just like oh let me get this one thing done before i start and then oh well now i have to do this and oh i have a quick call with this person and uh then a family event that i thought was going to be later in the evening got bumped up and then as I was driving home from that, I was like, all right, here we go. I can, I can squeeze in an hour or two. And then I had a two hour long call with Sarah and it, and then I was like, well, it's time for bed now. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So today's, today's going much better. I've already gotten uh, a bomb in, but yeah, I, I relate to the struggle of like, I get so frustrated in myself of I'm directed in this way. And like, this is the most important thing to do. And here I go off to <laughs> do, 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 let me do this thing first. Uh, what, what is my brain doing? Uh, okay, cool. I, I feel good about Acorn Chat. I'm excited to talk about that next time. Uh, talk to me about this Kaggle competition. What's the What's the game? What are we doing? Yeah, so there's actually three or four that I'm in right now. Uh, I'm really spending time on one of them. Um, I know okay. you're interested in another one, but I'll talk about this other one first. Okay. So the, the one I'm doing is, did I talk about this already? There's It's a dog and cat competition where you, no. it's, it's a, okay. It, so it's a, uh, a pet website where um, people adopt pets on this website, right? And they want to try to figure out what makes a good, in particular, a good picture for these pro to get clicks on the pet profiles, because, Ooh. you know, you may have a great pet, but if it has a bad picture, then it's not going to get clicks. And so it's not going to get adopted. Yeah, yeah. So they want by the picture alone, can you determine, you know, if basically if people will click on, you know, that pet. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So uh, I did it over a break a little bit because it's a small ish data set. And so you can do it on Google Colab. I don't need a big server for it. Um, and it is, it showed me some very interesting things separate from the competition. Cause I was doing like, people have sort of figured it out online, right? Like, which always happens in Kaggle. Like people into the discussion forums are like, you know, if you do this, you get pretty good results. And I was trying and I'm trying, I'm trying, and I just could not replicate the results. And then it turned out I had like basically two lines of code flipped, which is like the story of deep learning. It's like, <laughs> there, there's no actual errors. Like it sort of works, but then if you do things in the right order, then it, then it just works. Um, and so, you know, now, like, I probably won't make that mistake again. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I, but I had to go through hours and hours of trying to figure out why it wasn't working and now it sort of works. And so, um, now that it sort of works now, I can actually, like, I have lots of ideas about how to make it better than the, the leader current leaderboard. But, um, yeah, it's just deep learning is sometimes uniquely frustrating in that it's not like it, an error. It just sort of doesn't work until you get the right order of things. Then it does work. Um, so that was my experience <laughs> with that. I have several follow-up questions. Can you explain what the two lines were that were flipped? Um, it, they are unimportant, 
but the okay. yeah yeah but it was I, I was i was normalizing the data before i was doing data augmentations which means i was um how do I, uh, the, the pre-trained networks, the image networks, expect the data to be sort of, the, the best way to do it is to have it centered at, so say you have an image. Mm-hmm. If you have the data in the image centered at zero with a mean like a, around, say, um, like going out to about t- plus or minus three. Anyway, that's how a lot of these backbone networks are, are trained. If you n- normalize the data and then do data augmentations, then that shifts your mean way over. Um, and what I was getting when I was doing that, uh, I was also, I was doing a few other things wrong. I wasn't training for long enough. I was training with the wrong optimizer and some other things. But what happens, I was getting a score of about like, say, 21, which doesn't mean anything. That's okay. But it turns out if you just guess the mean every time, you get a score of like 21 and a half. <laughs> so <laughs> I was doing like really badly. Um, and I just couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. And then I flipped a few things around and then it just started working. And so, um, yeah. The, the normalizing step is taking the physical pixels and centering them so that the, the coordinates of each pixel are around zero zero yeah so images are stored in three channels from zero to 255 um it is very common to take that from zero instead of zero to 255 you divide by 255 so you get zero to one yeah but most of these they're called backbone networks or they're called a few different things There's these big pre-trained networks they expect them to be centered at zero instead of starting at zero yes and so it just so shifts them down a little bit one two or negative 0.5 to 0.5 uh, yeah, and then it spreads them out a little bit too, got it. Um, just okay. to get a little bit better separation. And if you, um, and then, but then what I was doing is data augmentation, which sort of moves the pixel values around, and so it was sort of offsetting all that stuff. Um, and that combined with a bad optimizer led to a bad outcome. Um, got it. Okay, so yeah. I, I perfectly understand that. That's actually uh, an example in the book you recommended for me, uh, hmm. TensorFlow for or learning TensorFlow JS. Uh, I think is the title. The uh, augmentation that you were doing is would that be analogous to like you're bumping up the contrast or you're, you're doing some sort of a matrix operation on the image yeah there's a lot of uh, typical things exactly what you're saying so changing the brightness contrast uh hue and saturation um also like randomly flipping it horizontally or vertically randomly skewing it just a little bit uh, randomly resizing it just a little bit uh, because of the way um neural networks work if you shift a pixel uh, picture by like five pixels mm-hmm. then it almost completely changes some of the operations that are done on it so it's really common to like just shift it by, you know, between zero and 20 pixels in one direction or the other. Mm-hmm. And you get almost completely different, like, um, like activation in the network. Got so it. yeah, there's, there's several common augmentations. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. And, uh, that, are you using that for like having a bigger data set that if, if you take an image that you know is a good image and you, and you rotate it by two degrees, you can use the same label, but it's you get bonus points for like having an additional image that's not being trained. Is that right? Yes, I my computer. Okay, I think it's caught back up. Um, my computer was crazy slow for some reason. Um, yes, I didn't catch everything you said, but exactly the data set is kind of small, and so if you augment your training data, you get a lot more, you know, good training data for the same amount. Uh, of input yep cool that makes sense uh neat several other follow-up questions on this uh (laughs) i love the idea of this that like you could train a neural net to tell you if you had a good or bad picture of a dog i'm imagining like embedded in the platform for taking these pictures as you're framing the photo it's telling you if it's a good or bad picture (laughs) and like uh maybe offering suggestions of uh get better lighting or something I, i guess i guess to to intelligently know what a suggestion would be would be an all of their can of worms but you could at least say like you know this has a 95 percent chance of being a good photo or, or not 
uh, that's really cool that we're at that stage of technology that like we can, computers can have taste in what a good dog or cat picture is. Um, I had the thought that I'm, I'm, I'm curious if there isn't some way stronger feature of the data set of like, no one ever clicks on pit bulls and it doesn't matter how good the picture of the pit bull is. That's the determining factor of whether or not people are going to click on this. Uh, have, have you thought of that? Yeah. So there's a few things that people are complaining about. Um, one is this is essentially like, uh, like the amount of clicks a profile gets or the amount of views is based a lot on what other pictures are there. So if you had all pit bulls, then there would be a good pit bull picture that people would click on. But if you have all pit bull pit bulls and one cute, you know, golden retriever puppy, then that yeah. golden retriever puppy is probably going to get a lot, all the clicks. Um, yeah. And they don't give us that information. So that's really hard to click on. The other is like the name and short description. Um, they don't give us that. They don't give any of the description at all. And so mm. what a lot of people are finding is it's really, really hard basically to figure, mm. to get any signal from just the picture alone. Um, and then the other thing that Kaggle is good at is people will always post in the discussions, other research papers that have been done on this topic. And there are several, and basically they find that, uh, the age of the, um, so young kittens and puppies get clicked on more often. Yeah, um, and then the breed, yeah. the breed is very important. Yeah. yeah. And so the age and the breed, um, and a few like the coloring and stuff, yeah, like almost perfectly can predict like, you know, what, what a better picture is, um, oh, which is man. not really helpful for, you know, no. so, <laughs> what, yeah. if, what if the way this worked was you just figure out the age and breed of the dog in the picture and you just go based on that and then and then in the app when you're taking a picture of it it can be like this is a bad picture have you tried a younger dog yep <laughs> um that's so funny okay yeah yeah i could see that being really difficult uh huh difficult problem for if, you, if you're actually trying to solve this too because like it sounds like they would have needed to get someone with more AI training experience involved sooner in the process to determine what is the data that we're going to need to be collecting. And can we normalize this a little bit more? And, uh, you know, maybe can we, can we put a bunch of fake dogs up there in this data set that's cleaner of like, we're going to show people only pit bulls or we're going to show people, you know, only pictures of the same pit bull and, and just see which one they click on. And, um, that's interesting. I, I, I'm starting to see it like a, a holistic utility for having people familiar with AI involved in, in more of the business processes, because if, if you're from, if, if there are people familiar with how AI works in the entire process, you can, you can frame much juicier self-contained problems of like, okay, we've, we've teed up now. This is a perfect machine learning problem. We have the perfect data. We've structured the company in a way that, that it's very easy to deliver on this. And then now we can toss out this machine learning problem and people can knock it out of the park. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. So one of the interesting things about Kaggle is you sort of get that. So they're giving, I don't know, it's like 30 K in total prize money. I'm assuming they're paying Kaggle something, you know, I don't know what they are, but, and for that, they get all these rich discussions about exactly what people have tried and exactly, mm. you know, where it falls down and what they need to do next time. And so, um, it's actually relatively inexpensive, I think for companies, you know, like uh, assuming they pay Kaggle, like say the same amount they do, I, I have no idea what Kaggle charges, but you know, for 60 K you get like, like, you know, a hundred different, you know, people looking very deeply at your data set and posting everything in the discussion forums about what they found. Like that's super valuable. Um, so yeah. actually I think Kaggle is a great way to do that, uh, because you get so much feedback. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. For 
I guess I guess they're effectively paying a team of outside consultants to yeah. like every complaint of ah this is impossible because we need blank they they can just use that as a checklist now of like okay well let's let's collect all that information and try it again or uh, or hire someone in house uh, you hinted at another Kaggle competition that uh, I'm more interested in uh, we've already talked about this but would you like to introduce the problem yes so another one I looked at was a crypto trading competition um, and. I, I have not done crypto trading for many years. Um, I did it before and we can talk about that. But um, the idea is you get like since 2018, you can you can use as much data as you want, but they give you since 2018. Um, I think it's daily or maybe uh, th like there's lots of data for several different um, uh, coin pairs. And the goal is at the end of this three months competition, you create a, you know, a bot that then runs for three months. Um, and it's not trading actual money. It's trading fake, you know, fake money, but it runs for three months. And then whoever has the most money at the end of the three months, uh, wins. And, uh, that's a kind of a really neat competition. I think, um, what I have learned, what I knew before and what I learned is it's basically gambling. <laughs> it's like, it's, um, we can talk about different market theses and stuff, but like trying to predict where a market's going to go, uh, like a good market is essentially gambling. Um, but this is actually not a very bad gamble because there's something like a thousand teams in the competition right now. Probably about half of those looked at it once and then didn't do anything more. Probably about half of the, those are are like going to post some very naive bad solutions. So you have something like 250 you know, solid teams competing probably and there's 10 prizes. 10 out of 250 is not very bad for a gamble that doesn't cost you any money. So I think I'm going to enter just to you know sort of be entered into this uh, uh, this lottery. I am super interested in this problem. I agree with you that it makes sense to do like as a bet for uh, in, in the context of this category competition. I think your, your odds are pretty good for the prize money. I would love to dive into that your view of it is gambling. Uh, I was a little spooked when you told me you were doing this because not two hours before I got your message on Twitter, I had had lunch with a old friend from college who was telling me all about his new company that he started doing crypto quant trading. A little background on me in this problem. I got really interested in the idea of quant uh, trading. For, for anyone who doesn't know, my understanding of quant, quant trading is uh, uh, short for quantitative analysis. This idea that you can like look at a graph or look at some set of data of the past performance of an individual stock and be able to predict what the future value of the stock is going to be. And there's all sorts of algorithms of like, ah, recognize a candlestick pattern and recognize a, a double loop-de-loop -loop of, oh, if it goes <laughs> up and then down, it's going to go back up again and it's going to go back to this number. After reading Fooled by Randomness, uh, I think by uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb, um, that's just a ruthless takedown that anything like this is possible. Uh, his, the, the, the idea that I got from the book is that trying to predict the stock market based on the pattern of the movement of stocks is a fool's errand. Uh, and it's a, it's a trap for a lot of really smart people. Uh, and don't do it. <laughs> you're, you're, you might think you can, and then uh, you'll get caught with your pants down eventually. Uh, there's this really funny anecdote in Fool by Randomness about like, Nassim Taleb is, is very wealthy and lives in this wealthy neighborhood. And he was like, and then this hotshot came in and he moved in and uh, he's next door. And, you know, he had a nicer car than me and a bigger house than me. And uh, he was doing this thing. And here's exactly what his investing strategy was. It was based on this quantitative analysis. And then one day he lost his shirt. And I had to move out of his house. And I was sitting there on my porch laughing at him while he had to pack up his stuff because he couldn't even afford a mover. Uh, so that's that's 
how I came to this lunch with my friend. Uh, and my friend informed me that there are a lot of very profitable companies that employ a lot of really, really smart people to do this in stocks and in crypto. And apparently they make a whole bunch of money. And so he worked for a little bit for one of these companies and was like, okay, I understand what they're doing. It's a lot of machine learning stuff and I could do that. Uh, so he's now starting his own company to do it. I'm curious. I I would like to be disproven. I, I, I would like, it, it seems feasible to me that like you have this skill set that not many, very many people have of being able to use machine learning to analyze these complicated patterns. Uh, I, I, my understanding is everyone agrees that things like candlestick patterns and uh, uh, ways of doing more uh, naive quantitative analysis are broken because those are patterns everyone already knows. And if you already know all the patterns everyone else knows, you can just do the opposite of what that pattern is and, and then you make more money than them. And then that game has been played out to the nth degree. If, if you know that someone knows that <laughs> someone knows that someone is using the candlestick pattern, you can do the strategy that's going to beat them. Um, so, you know, maybe in a zero sum game, it's probably only the one company who's employed the most PhDs is, is going to take all the money. Uh, but machine learning seems like the sort of innovation that could give an advantage to the little guy that like, theoretically, you could figure out some pattern that no one's seen before and make a whole bunch of money from it. Uh, I am very curious why you're framing this general problem as gambling uh, that like, like of all the people I know who could potentially make money doing this, probably going to be you. <laughs> and maybe my, I, I think my friend uh, is also making money doing this. Uh, but like, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious from your academic perspective. Uh, you, you've solved a lot of these problems. You have a much better understanding of machine learning. Uh, what, what's your take on this problem generally? Yeah, so I have lots of thoughts about this because I used to do a lot of it and then I just stopped because of what I saw and uh, now I'm doing a little bit more because of this competition. So I have lots of thoughts. Um, so in general, in a an efficient market, which is um, what you're talking about for the Fooled by Randomness book, so efficient markets are things like stocks where most people have some exposure to the stock market, even if it's like through your work, which has a pension program, which buys stocks, right? Um or, you know, your 401k is invested in index funds or whatever. In an efficient market, it is extraordinarily difficult to make money versus just buying and holding, which is what most people do, right? Um, because, like, so generally, people expect the markets to go up, and that's why buying and holding works. And if you time it, if you try to time it, what's going to happen is you're going to, like, just lose a whole bunch of money because you're going to inevitably buy at the wrong time and then lose money versus buying and holding. Um, crypto, though, is is right now currently depending on who you ask, an inefficient market, which means the same amount of money is not in it because it is very difficult for retail investors, which is everybody like buying through their 401k or whatever to buy crypto. So most of the people doing it are speculators, like people wildly betting on things or a lot of these quant thing, you know, quant people or critically people following what a lot of these quant people say are valid signals. So what that gives you is things like, so the, the candlestick patterns that you're talking about, there's a lot of them. And what people do, a lot of people are buying based on those signals, which means because it's an inefficient market, you can predict what the price is going to do based oh. on what people are doing. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Interesting. And so um, you can say like, you know, if it drops to this level, a lot of people are going to see that as a signal and do this action, which means it's going to either go up or down by this much. Okay. And that works 
shockingly well for crypto. Um, the problem that you're talking about is it works great until it doesn't. And so what people do is they trade on those signals and they start getting profit. They're like, this is awesome. They put all their money into like a single trade or a single leverage trade, which is where you get really, you know, bad results. And then it goes exactly flipped, you know, at like a 55% probability or something. Um, And they lose all their money. Okay. What really good quant trade funds will do. um, First of all, they have 20 PhDs working on it, you know, 80 hours a week. And so that's what you don't have. And then um, they also have very, very strict strategies about how much money they put in on any one trade. And they critically get out of trades that are not profitable. And so they will lose money purposefully on trades that are not profitable. Whereas a typical investor just following what they would do, they will be like, oh, no, I know my strategy is good. I'll just stay in it a little longer. And then since it's leveraged, like, you know, 10 to 1 or 100 to 1, which you can do in crypto, which is crazy. Then, you know, it goes down 1% and you lose all your money. That's what 101 leverage means. So that's what these quant funds can actually do. And that's why they actually make money. They have a lot of people working around the clock to update their models all the time. They have very strict and good, you know, like get in and out signals and they actually follow them, even if it means they lose money on any specific trade. And, you know, they never risk more than, you know, 0.5 or 1% of their capital or something on any one trade. Um, So that is why you can make money as a quant crypto trader. Um, If you don't do those things, which I am not that, you know, one of those things, then I'm not saying you can't, but it's essentially gambling at that point because you're, you're fighting against these, you know, 20 person, you know, uh, quant, quant head funds. So yeah, that's kind of a long, uh, and then I'll say one more thing, which is the stuff that I was doing before this wasn't, couldn't be, isn't classified as like quant stuff. It was, uh, basically arbitrage, which means there's different, this was early, early days and there was lots of different, um, um, different uh funds (laughs) marketplaces i guess for for crypto and if you buy on one and sell on another they're gonna have slightly different prices Mm -hmm. and so i basically set up a system where i'd buy on one and sell on the other and i do that symmetrically and so Mm -hmm. i actually never lost money i didn't make as much as you could have maybe you know but i never lost money and i actually made it was back then it was several hundred dollars um all right all right right. so you know that's not nothing but uh, I got out of it because uh, that essentially went away. As soon as the market became more efficient, people were able to trade across these uh, exchanges more readily, then that advantage went away. So you're basically always chasing these little advantages, and I don't want to do this full time, and so I don't want to chase the, the advantages, and so that's why I don't do it anymore. That was beautiful. Uh, let me let me try to repeat that back and see if I understand. The, the, the reason that doesn't work in the stock market is that the stock market is an efficient market, uh, and I'd, I'd forgotten the definition of efficient market. I think that means just like there's a lot of people in it. Like it's it's basically it's the people the, the wi- are people playing these games out of uh, to to the nth degree. Yeah, it's the wisdom is of the crowd approach. Basically, like the crowd generally will get it right. And so if you unless you have some unique advantage, so like Warren Buffett, people point to Warren Buffett and say like he makes a ton of money. Yeah, he has access to deal flows that you don't. <laughs> like uh, he can buy. So he bought like a railway worth six billion for three billion because they needed the cash. It's yeah. like he could do that because he had three billion in cash. Yeah, you know, you don't. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, unless you have some advantage, like Warren Buffett has a ton of cash to sit around, yeah. then um, you can only do as good as the rest of the crowd. Yes, and he, if if the multi-billion-dollar railway market was an efficient market, if there were several buyers for that uh, railway, then there would have been bidding, and then it, it probably right. would. Have the price would have gone up to, to what the fair price in the market uh, should have been. But because it's an inefficient market, there was an imbalance of supply and demand. Uh, it was a smaller market. Okay, now there's these opportunities you can take advantage of. Okay, I'm with yep. you. Um, so in crypto, crypto in, in, in 
parts of crypto, there are still inefficiencies. There are weird coins. There are weird pairs of coins. Um, this crypto hasn't really become institutionalized. There's not like these big whales of pension funds that are investing a bunch of crypto. Um, so a lot of these games that didn't, that don't make sense in efficient markets of like looking at candlestick patterns have made sense in crypto. Like I imagine candlestick patterns were at one time a thing. And then the first order quant traders got on and were like, oh, candlestick patterns are a thing. Let's buy here and sell here. And cause that's what the pattern is. Uh, and what it sounds like now is we're getting the second and third uh, degree of quant traders coming in being like, well, I know that people are going to be recognizing candlestick patterns. So I'm going to do the opposite of that trade uh, and take advantage of those people. And then the next degree are coming in and saying, well, I know that people know that people are doing the candlestick patterns. So I'm going to do the opposite of that trade. Yep. Uh, okay. Uh, and it sounds like it's, it's like conceivably possible that you could be making money doing this, but it's very dangerous. Uh, especially if you're leveraged, uh, this can be like, you know, hundred to one trades where you're losing a bunch of money. Um, so not a game worth playing. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and in crypto, there's even some other effects that we didn't really talk about, which is, um, so insider trading is a thing even in the normal markets, but in crypto, like it's not regulated like at all. And so for example, if Coinbase, this used to be a bigger deal, um, but if Coinbase is going to list a coin, it's going to spike as soon as it gets on there because people who only have access to Coinbase are going to buy the coin. And so what they found is there were a lot of big buys right before Coinbase would list the coin. Mm. And they were like, who's buying these coins? You know, it's like, <laughs> if you're a Coinbase employee, you know, Coinbase is going to list the coin on a certain yeah. day. It makes a lot of sense to buy a lot of that coin before, you yeah. know, so um, yeah, things like that. Um, and the other thing that happens in crypto right now, which doesn't happen in, in uh, efficient markets is depending on which country you're in, makes it legal or illegal to buy certain coins and at certain leverages. Mm -hmm. And so that's a big deal. Um, it used to be a bigger deal even than it is now, but it's still a big deal what country you're in. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, I think I think fundamentally for me, the place that I'm sitting on this is like, it, it, this isn't an interesting problem to me. Like yeah. it's, it's very high risk chess that I could see myself getting sucked into that's not really improving the world at all. I'm just taking money from other people trying to do the same thing. Uh, okay, cool. I, I feel uh, justified in not investing any more thought CPU cycles <laughs> to, uh, yeah. to this problem. Good. I'm, I'm just going to continue buying and holding. Yeah, I will say one good thing about it, though, which is, so I was early in crypto, um, and it made me extremely disciplined in my regular investing because I mm. would I, like, I lost several thousand dollars early in crypto, um, which still really hurts because if I would have just bought and hold, that would be worth millions of dollars <laughs> and I didn't. And now I'm <laughs> playing catch up, right? This, I think that a lot of crypto people have that, you know, like I didn't just buy and hold this is what I should have done. But because I lost that money, I viscerally learned the lessons from crypto, which is like, it would go up and down, you know, 10% in an hour, yeah. whereas the markets go up 10% in a day or sorry, in like a month. Right. Yeah. So I got this like crash course into investing in real markets and that made me much more disciplined in like my, you know, IRA and 401k investing. And, yeah. you know, like I see that playing out, um, in my investments now. And so like, <laughs> this is dangerous advice, but if you want to spend a few thousand dollars learning in crypto markets, I think that's good. Not because you might make money in crypto, but because it teaches you at a fast, at a fast pace, what like yeah, trading yeah. in the actual markets is. Um, and so, you know, if my portfolio goes down 10%, I'm like, okay, just wait a little bit <laughs> uh, whereas some people would freak out and sell um 
so that that is what it, it gave me really like I, I don't have the you know millions that someone who gotten so early should have but i do have the knowledge about trading that i that i learned i like that you've been inoculated against wild market swings <laughs> yeah. that, that was a good articulation i think i've also felt that of like you know when that when the uh s&p 500 crashed uh I, don't know, I think like two years ago everyone lost their minds they were like oh my god the market's dropped 10 percent in a week i was like that's that's it that's <laughs> nothing right yeah, yeah. <laughs> i've seen you know 200 percent portfolio swings in, in the crypto part of my investments and uh that's I, I feel nothing now when uh when the rest of the portfolio is moving around uh yeah i, I like that it's, it's a way to experience those market fluctuations faster uh yeah okay cool that makes sense but even then like i think it makes sense to apply your same strategy to stocks as you are to crypto yes so like if you want to prove to yourself that you're a bad quant trader okay do that in crypto first that's where you have the edge um be careful not to delude yourself on a few lucky trades and then bet the house and then lose everything but if you do like okay better to do that in crypto where it's moving faster and hopefully you're you're not betting as much money uh than in the stock market um okay cool that, that feels like it's in a good place uh neat i oh, we're we're going on time uh how are you on time i'm fine what are we okay oh cool. yeah we, we we had some recording uh snafus so we're over time but that's fine that's fine Okay. Uh, I have three main things I want to talk to you about. Uh, first is file inbox progress, and then an update on Dude, Where's My Car? And then uh, a new segment I'd like to call Won't You Be My Boss? Uh, so in order, uh, file inbox, I set some very ambitious goals at the beginning of this month to recode my entire app in serverless, which is a thing I've been trying to do for years. And uh, <laughs> that is going to get done. However, I have four days left on my deadline to update my app to work with the new way that the Dropbox OAuth API works. Oh, so yes. I have tabled the uh, complete serverless overhaul, and I'm just going to go back into the Rails app and uh, update that. And uh, making steady progress feels good. The very first thing I did was just write out a big to-do list. Uh, I'm, I'm going through and tweeting every time I make substantial progress on that. Uh, the thing that took me the longest to do was just to like get my app rebooted because man, when, <laughs> when you're trying to restart this this yeah. crusty old curmudgeon, it's like, all right, you know, <laughs> this library is six major versions out of date and they've completely depreciated like the entire library that I used to use, uh, specifically React Router. Uh, I, I ended up just downgrading that and, and using the mm -hmm. old way that it went, but it uh, feels good making good progress and uh, it, it's appealing to my ADD way of doing things because I have a strong deadline of I have four days, uh, which was already an extension that Dropbox gave me to uh, uh, implement their new API. And feels pretty straightforward i'm just gonna keep following down the list uh that feels good uh an interesting side effect from work that i did on this when it crashed uh, a couple episodes ago was that my downtime monitor is now actually working and i'm getting like half a dozen notifications per day hmm. of it going down and then back up and the website is still up it's, it's just showing me that like a, a specific server is crashing uh but I, I feel renewed energy to get this in serverless i didn't i didn't realize that infrastructure was that crusty uh so that's that's the current status of that uh and i don't really have any questions where i just wanted to tell you it's, yeah, it's no, that's fine. my only comment is it's, it's kind of cheeky but uh deadlines actually work which is yes. <laughs> yeah there you go imagine that yes uh and it's a real deadline too like, right i'm sure i could contact them and get another extension but I'd, I'd feel like a piece of poop if they were like we you this was months ago you still haven't done this uh yeah. so we're just gonna get it done uh here's my update for dude where's my car i talk with the police 
uh, and had that whole interaction I talked about last time of them saying that they were going to do the report. And my expectation was that I wouldn't get my car back, that just nothing would happen. Mm-hmm. So imagine my surprise when I see a missed voicemail from the Irving Police Department uh, that says, hello, uh, please call us. And I thought, okay, let me set my expectations. I'm going to call them and they're going to say, hello, you're under arrest. And I'm going to say, why? <laughs> and they're going to say, because you tried to use the police and you can't do that. Uh, okay, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. And I called them and they said, uh, hi, who's this? And I said, hello, it's it's Christian. Uh, and they said, what's your last name? And I said, it's uh, Christian Deco. <laughs> they said, uh, what do you want? And I said, uh, you called me and I have a stolen car. And they were like, what's the police number? And I said, uh, it's this. And they said, uh, great, we have closed that police file. And I said, oh, okay. Just You've just closed it for fun. And they said, we got your car back. Oh. And I thought, oh, <laughs> you got my car back. That was not something I was expecting. And they said, yes. We, uh, in the report here, it says, uh, your car was pulled over. There was someone in the car. That person was not arrested. And your car is currently at this impound lot, and you can go pick it up. And I was elated. And I said, thank you so much. The police are awesome. This is really cool. And I went to the impound lot, and they said, uh, hello. And I said, hi, I'd like to give my car back, please. And they said, great, that'll be $350. And I said, yeah. you know what? Cool. Let's, that's like about how much a, a replacement key would have been if I had tried to yeehaw cowboy this and, and get my car back. So fine. Uh, so I got my car back and it didn't work and it didn't work because of this weird electrical thing of like the way it was towed and, but I got that fixed. Uh, and I have my car back (laughs) and I'm amazed. (laughs) Like I, I asked the police to go find my car that I lost because I rented it to someone and they got it back. Like that feels really cool. Uh, and so (laughs) this is going to sound really dumb, but I'm going to try again. (laughs) I, uh, I got I got a I got a, a GPS remote disabling kit uh, for like one hundred and fifty dollars, and had my brother in law uh, wire it into the starter of the car. So I now have a button that I can push that will stop the car from being restarted. Uh, it won't stop the engine like if it's going on the highway. It's not a safety right. thing. Um, but like as soon as the car is shut off, uh, he figured out how to do it in this way that it also traps the key in there. Uh, oh. So I hit a button. And then wherever they park next and turn off the car, they won't be able to take the key out and they won't be able to restart it. And I have a constant GPS tracker on exactly where it is. So seems reasonably safe of like, as soon as they're an hour late, I send them a text and I'm like, hey, you need to drive right back here right now or I'm going to go get the car back. Um, so yeah, that's that's the current status of that. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the dude, where's my car has been... Uh, it reached its climax. Uh, the car is now in my driveway and going to get rented out again this week. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's interesting. I, the two changes that I would make, uh, I have some comments, <laughs> I guess I'm trying to still formulate them, but the two changes I would make when you rent it out next time is, well, I don't know about this one. I was going to say, I would tell the person, like, if you're late, then the car won't start again. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's best left as a surprise or if you should like actually tell them. Yeah. So I don't know about that one. Um, but I would say something like, because we think what happened is the last person couldn't pay the fee to return it. Yeah. I, I, I think that's what happened. So I would say something like, if you can't pay, text me and we will figure something out. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, um, like I would make it clear that it's okay to text you with bad news. I think most people like 
cannot deliver bad news to someone like they owe money to or a boss or something. Yeah, yeah. And if you make it okay to deliver bad news, then you'll get better news, <laughs> like 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 more yeah. up to date information. Um, I guess I don't know about the GPS. Like, I maybe don't tell them about the GPS tracker, but tell them it won't start if you're overdue or something. Like, I, I don't know. Um, yeah. I'm very interested to hear <laughs> volume two <laughs> of Dude, Where's My Car? Um, yeah. Stay tuned. <laughs> that's, that's a very good point of, like, I would love to set up a relationship with the next person who writes it where they feel more comfortable giving me bad news. I've right. been in that position. I've I've returned things late, and I've been late in, you know, implementing a api upgrade to dropbox and felt ashamed to contact them and ask for more time uh like i get it um so i think that's an important point of let them know when they pick up the car like hey you're poor we both know you're poor and it's okay <laughs> to be poor and uh, maybe maybe not quite so patronizing but yeah <laughs> sure <laughs> I'll, I'll workshop that i'll uh <laughs> Oh boy. Uh yeah. And <laughs> framing it in a way that like Man, it's difficult too not to be threatening of like just so you know, I called the police to the last person who didn't know the car. That's gonna happen to you if you I wouldn't say that. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't discuss anything that's happened before. I'd just say, you know, you know, I have a remote shut off in the car. Um I just want you to know, you know, if you're gonna be late for any reason, please keep you know, communication lines open so that I don't, you know, like accidentally shut off the car on you or you know, something, you yeah, know, yeah. like uh, frame it very, very non-committally, but or not just very non, non-powerfully, but that you have the power to, you know, actually yeah, influence yeah. You know, what the car does. Yeah. I might, I might phrase it in some, something like, um, just so you know, the, the system might automatically disable the car mm -hmm. if the payment is late. So if it's going to be late, just let me know and I can make sure that doesn't happen. Right which is sort of vague about what the system is mm. that it's like that's sort of bending the truth of well the system right. is it's me. like <laughs> it's not it's not car. me you know right <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> it's like i it, i want to do the right things so. right we're on the same yeah. team here uh okay that that feels pretty good um here's my question for you in this mm. instance uh the woman who rented the car from me based on the contract that we signed I went through the contract. It's brutal to her. It's like mm -hmm. for every day that it's late, there's this extra fee. And for every fee that's not paid within 30 days, I can charge her an extra 2% per month. Um, and I can charge her the impound fee and a cleaning fee and, and all this other stuff. Uh, the higher car, the company that we run it through is giving me nothing and they're not going to help me at all. So it's kind of up to me of what I do next. Yeah. My understanding is because we had a contract, I don't need to like take her to small claims court or anything because this is money that she owes me. But in order to get the money, I would need to persistently ask her or hire a uh, collections company who, or to annoy her for the rest of her life. Um, what should I do next? Uh, and I'll couch this in a song I was listening to the other day uh, from Limiz. It's uh, in, in the opening, the, the third song, I think. Uh, Jean Valjean, the protagonist, has just gotten out of jail on a trumped-up charge. He uh, stole a loaf of bread and broke a window pane, uh, and then went to jail for uh, twelve years. Eight? No, nineteen years. Nineteen years. Uh, and he gets taken in by this bishop after he's not able to do work, and they they feed him super generously, and they have all this silver on the table. And uh, he, Jean Valjean, the protagonist, makes this realization of like, you know, th this fork that I'm holding in my hand, the silver fork, is worth more than all of the salary that I got paid in this work camp for the last 19 years. 
So Jean Valjean, in the middle of the night, uh, steals a bunch of the silver and leaves the house. And then he gets apprehended by the police. And the police take him back to the bishop's house and are like, hey, we caught this guy who was stealing your silver. And he had the gall to say that you gave him this silver. And the bishop responds, that's right. I did give him the silver. And actually, you know, you forgot the most valuable piece, these silver candlesticks. Uh, he gives him even more money. And, and at the time, this was like a fortune. Uh, and the, the bishop makes this point of like, uh, now remember this, my brother, seeing this some higher plan, you must use this precious silver to become an honest man. And says, I have, I have bought your soul for God. Uh, like, I'm doing this very nice thing for you and set yourself straight. And then the entire rest of the musical is about how this one act of kindness, like, set Jean Valjean straight. And then he, he does all this other good. And the, the rest of the musical is just about, like, all the people he saves and all the, all the good they did, that he did. And that touched me <laughs> because I am in the position of the bishop now. And, like, on the one hand, capitalism, very important. This woman stole my car. Uh, that's not good. I, she should pay me back for that. The economy would grind to a halt. On the other hand, I'm in a very different economic position than her. She was not able to pay $80. And this is now probably like a $2,500, $3,000 charge um, that like legally I feel entitled to that would be extra work for me to pursue. Uh, this is the dilemma I'm currently facing. Uh, what What would you do next? There is, uh, let's see, there's a lot of advice I give. Um, it very, very much depends on, depends on what you may be asking. Well, unfortunately, dear listener of Makers.tev, you can't know because our recording stopped here. Uh, Chris basically said that it's not worth the time or trouble for me to do it. And that is kind of the answer I was looking for. So I don't think I'm going to do anything. And we might... We might talk about this a little bit more in the next episode. Uh, but I, I did want to play you one more clip from a recording that did survive from this episode. So here that is. Uh, cool. All right. Last thing. Total change of tone. Uh, <laughs> in this new segment, I'd like to call Won't You Be My Boss as a play on the Mr. Rogers Won't You Be My Neighbor. Uh, I'd like to play a game with you. And the game is I'm going to give you. Say it again. <laughs> it's similar to saw in that it's a game that we're playing and in no other way um and other people will be watching it i guess uh the the game is you have this next week four pomodoros of my time that you can spend however you want you you tell me what to do for those four pomodoros i'm gonna do it and i'm gonna report back to you how it went uh but i'm not gonna not do it like bare minimum i'm gonna spend those four pomodoros doing the work that you assigned for me your goal in assigning those Pomodoros is to make my MRR for file inbox go up. I just checked on ProfitWell. It's currently at $5,564. In four Pomodoros for this next week, you win if that number goes up and you have four Pomodoros of my time to spend on it. How would you like to spend that time? And once again, you'll, you'll have to wait till next week. Uh, we had a great discussion about exactly the four things I'm going to do. And you can't know about them yet. So we're, we're going to talk about the next week, uh, what they were and how they went. And I'm really excited for this. It feels really good. So that's it. Uh, Riverside, you let me down. 
we lost some recording. Uh, Chris's internet, you, you let both of us down. But it's okay. We will see you next week where we'll recover these concepts. Until then, I'll see you and Chris next week. Goodbye.